0: This is Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast. I'm Amanda Maxim. I'm joined today in our Irvine office by Alon Jerna. Hi, Amanda. Hi. I understand that you recently had the chance to talk with an expert on the Arab-Israeli conflict.
1: I did. His name is uh, Professor Efraim Karsh. He is a professor at uh, King's College London, studying Middle East and Mediterranean studies. He's a fellow, a principal research fellow at the Middle East Forum. He edits a couple of journals, um, Middle East Quarterly and Israel Affairs. And I talked to him about his most recent book. It's called Palestine Betrayed. And it's really exciting because he's done what I think of as important scholarly work Untangling this conflict and the historical, the very contentious historical uh, situation concerning uh, the refugee problem, which lives on today since uh, the founding of Israel and the war that uh, that came from.
0: So, talking about the uh, an aspect of the Middle East conflict or the Arab-Israeli conflict. And that seems like a really complex, complex issue and something that's hard for someone who doesn't know much about it to to jump into. So, maybe can you give us a little bit of a background about the, the conflict that uh, Mr. Karsh will talk about?
1: Sure. So, the focus of his book and where we begin the interview is setting the historical backdrop to the fateful conflict, uh, the war that erupted in 1947, 1948, around the time that there was a question of what should happen in Palestine. So this was British-controlled land. There were Jewish settlers. There were uh, Arabs who lived there. And there were all kinds of attempts to solve the problem in a lot of uh, conflicts. The UN comes into the picture at a certain point and tries to resolve it with a, a plan to partition the land into two states. Uh, there's a war, lots of different uh, participants in the war, and we get into that a little bit. and as part of this there are people who become refugees and the big question is why are they refugees who's who's culpable for this uh what should be done about them what role should do they have in the conflict as it's understood today and there literally people still classified as refugees now who are waiting a resolution and it's not clear what will happen there.
0: Yeah, that conflict happened, you said a long time ago. So you're saying that there's still refugees that are waiting for this to be resolved?
1: Yeah, and it's a persistent problem. It has a certain it's an interesting way in which it continues to shape the debate people have about how to resolve the conflict. And that's something we talk about later on in the in the conversation. Um, The first question I I raise with him is help us situate this narrow, seemingly narrow problem about the Palestinian refugees in the bigger story of the conflict at the beginning of the the 20th century that culminates in the war of 47, 48, and then what follows after that. So I think that first part is helpful to situate it for people in the history. And then we get into the details of how it unfolded.
0: That sounds really interesting. Good.
1: Let's have a listen. Sure. Well, I'm joined today by Ephraim Karsh, Professor of Middle East and Mediterranean Studies at King's College London. Dr. Karsh is also Principal Research Fellow at the Middle East Forum, and he's the editor of two academic journals, Middle East Quarterly and Israel Affairs. His most recent book is titled Palestine Betrayed and was published in 2010 by Yale University Press. It is a historical reappraisal of the years leading up to the fateful United Nations resolution to partition Palestine and the conflict that it has endured since 1947. Dr. Karsh, welcome. Thank you for joining us today.
2: Pleasure to be with you.
1: So of the many issues and contentions in the Arab-Israeli conflict, I want to start with one that you address at length in your book and that continues to be a live issue today. And the shorthand for it, I'll start with that and we can delve into it, is the right of return, or in other words, the claim that the Palestinians make that refugees from the 1948 war with the founding state of Israel were expelled and must be permitted to return to reclaim that land. So I want to start with that as our focus. And in order to get into that, perhaps you could sketch some of the historical backdrop for what was happening in British-controlled Palestine prior to the partition? What was the partition supposed to deliver? Uh, and what followed the partition?
2: Okay, uh, the British uh, conquered Palestine in the First World War, uh, partly uh, with uh, Jewish help, the newly aspiring uh, Jewish fighting units and so on. And then they controlled this territory under a UN mandate, under the League of Nations mandate, the predecessor of the United Nations, Uh, and the mandate was designed to establish a Jewish national home in Palestine in accordance with the Balfour Declaration of 1917. So the British were not just in Palestine, they were in Palestine with the specific task of establishing a Jewish state. However the Palestinian Arab leadership at the time headed by Hajj uh, Muhammad uh, Husseini Hajj Amin Husseini, Muhammad Amin Husseini uh, embarked on a collision course uh, from the early 1920s uh, despite his promise to the British who appointed him to this uh, position to lead to peace between Arabs and Jews in Palestine. And therefore the British were piece by piece reneging on their uh, commitment to facilitate the establishment of a Jewish state, and in 1937 uh, suggested for the first time to partition Palestine between uh, Jews and Arabs. The Arab part of Palestine, by the way, was supposed to be annexed to Transjordan, uh, ruled by uh, Emir Abdallah, who later became King Abdallah. Uh, The Jews accepted it. With much regret because it meant uh, giving up about 90% of Palestine. But the Palestinian Arab leadership rejected it. The Arab states rejected it, with the exception of Abdallah. And uh, they continued the violence, which already began in 1936. Then came the Second World War in 1939. And already before the war, the British were quite anxious to accommodate the Arabs and issued a white paper in which basically if it were to be implemented would have destroyed the Jewish national cause in Palestine. The Arabs rejected it nevertheless and uh, due to the war nothing happened. After the war the Jews emerging from the Holocaust uh, renewed the demand for a Jewish state, and uh, began using uh, military and political means to achieve this goal, uh, mainly by the Haganah, the main underground units, and the smaller uh, organizations, the Irgun, the Lehi, the so-called Shteren Gang. And as a result of this, the British realized they couldn't keep the peace in Palestine, and they brought the issue to the United Nations, now in 47. What was the hope that the UN would achieve? Now, they hoped that the United Nations would ask them to reassert their control in Palestine and give them renewed mandate to impose whatever solution they wanted. Instead, the United Nations appointed a commission which suggested to partition Palestine uh, and to establish in uh, former mandatory uh, territory two states, one Jewish, the other Arabs. The Jews accepted it, as they did in 1937. The Arab rejected it, and the Palestinian Arab leadership headed by Haj Amin Husseini reverted to violence uh, a day after the passing of the U.N. resolution on the 29th of November 47. Now, from now on began what Israelis called the War of Independence. Until May 48, when Israel was established, the 14th of May, the war was mainly between The underground units, the Agana, the Irgun, and the Lehi, and the Palestinian Arab units headed by Husseini, which didn't mean the entire Palestinian population because most Palestinian Arabs were opposed to it, and therefore, when the fighting got tough, they ran away. Then, on the 14th of May, the Arab states invaded uh, the newly established states of Israel, and the war continued until early 49, when Israel managed to defeat them, and armistice agreements were signed. Now between November 47, since the initiation of the Palestinian-Arab war, and the end of the war, about 600 Palestinian Arabs fled their horse. So you put the figure at
1: 600,000 refugees. Tell us a bit about why you think they might have fled.
2: And uh, in my latest book, Palestine Betrayed, I document this, uh, this departure down to the latest village and town. Now, out of these 600,000, about 350 fled before the establishment of the State of Israel, and about 250 fled in the wake of the establishment. Out of the 350 fleeing the country prior to Israel's establishment, almost no one was expelled by the Israelis. Most of them fled out of fear, disorientation, and lack of national cohesiveness and reluctance to sacrifice the personal good for the benefit of uh, the general good. Tens of thousands were expelled by Arab forces. The most famous case is Haifa, the city of Haifa, where about 70,000 Jews and 65,000 Arabs lived. About half of them fled uh, between November and April. In April, when the British decided to relocate their forces in the city, a short fight ensued between the Haganah forces and the Arab forces, two days fighting. And after these two days' fighting, the Arabs decided to surrender, and the local Arab leadership, instructed by the Mufti and the national leadership, which most of it was placed out of the country, ordered the Palestinian Arabs to leave Haifa, despite the pleas of the local Jewish leadership for them to stay. The same thing happened in Tiberias on a much smaller scale a few days earlier, the Arabs were forcefully relocated by their own people from Jaffa, from Jerusalem, and from scores of villages. All in all, I would say that out of the 350 fleeing the country before Israel's establishment, about 50 to 100,000 were evacuated by their own people, almost no one by the Jews. After Israel's establishment, there are places where Arabs were ordered by Jews to leave, as in the city of Lida but this was always on a local basis and due to the circumstances on the ground with great reluctance and didn't indicate any national intention to expel. And indeed Arabs at the time, Palestinian Arabs at the time, including the refugees, did not blame Israel for their plight. They blamed the their own leadership, they blame the Arab states. Uh, you have a famous document of a British uh, diplomat visiting the Gaza refugee camps in early '49, and they're telling the refugees, we know who, are, who our enemies are, and they meant the Palestinian Arab leadership and the Egyptians, and they expressed their wish to go back and leave. Unfortunately this never happened because the Arabs were never willing to make peace and to create the conditions that would lead to the repatriation. So I want to rewind a little bit to
1: before the refugee crisis and the war and ask you more about the the situation on the ground between the incoming Jewish settlers, the, the settlement, the Yeshuv, and the Arabs who lived there, and just to get a sense for what their existence was like, how did they coexist with their conflicts, What was the quality of life like once there was large-scale
2: Jewish immigration? Just paint the picture for us. Under the Ottoman Empire, which collapsed after the First World War in 1918, I mean, there was no sense of Arab nationalism or any national awareness among the Arabic-speaking populations of the Middle East, including uh, Palestine. Palestine itself didn't exist as as a unified political or territorial entity. It was divided among the... Ottoman province uh, of uh, Beirut and the district of Jerusalem. So there was no Palestine under the Ottoman. The people there didn't feel Arab, they didn't feel Palestinians. So when the Jews arrived in the late 19th, early 20th century and began settling there, there was no real opposition to Jewish settlement. Uh, There are local feuds uh, between farmers here and there and uh, Jewish farmers here and there, but no more than that. On the contrary, they benefited greatly from the Jewish uh, arrival in in Palestine, which gradually revived uh, the country. And this increased after uh, the First World War, where more Jewish money and more Jewish uh, arrivals uh, rebuilt the country and improved it. And as a result of this, uh, the, the territory that came to be known as Palestine after the British arrival which had a negative demographic balance prior to the First World War, with much greater emigration than immigration, the Palestinian Arab population began to grow. And between the 20s and the 40s, it, it almost doubled as a result, mainly to the improvement of living conditions in Palestine, reduction of mortality, most of the, this increased took place in areas that were close to Jewish uh, neighborhoods. Uh, For example, the city of Haifa, which I mentioned before, uh, the Arab population of of Haifa uh, between 1920 and 1940 grew by about 80 percent. The same happened in, not the same, but uh, similar uh, growth happened in Jerusalem, happened in Jaffa, uh, in cities that were joint Arab-Jewish neighborhoods. By contrast, if you take uh, Gaza or you take Hebron or other purely Arab uh, towns and cities, the population decreased during this period. So you see a huge increase in population in mixed cities where Jews and Arabs live together, and a decrease in areas which were purely Arabs. The Arabs benefited uh, from uh, modernization of the agriculture, The oranges became famous as a result of Jewish arrivals prior to the Jewish arrivals. The so-called Jaffa oranges were hardly exported. After the Jewish arrival, it increased several fold. The same happened to other agricultural growth, and so on and so forth. So, since the national awareness was relatively low or non-existent up to the 30s, and even then. And since the living conditions improved, most of the Arab population of mandatory Palestine uh, was amenable to coexistence with the Jews. And indeed, if you look at these 20, 25 years of coexistence, you see, uh, by and large, peaceful coexistence. You see joint ventures, uh, you see collaboration on a daily basis. In mixed cities you have uh, mixed management. and so on and so forth. So you've written about the coexistence and the
1: mutually advantageous uh, arrangements that sometimes arose, and yet you also cover some of the sharper uh, conflicts that existed.
2: The violent explosions, uh, some of which were quite sharp, were limited in duration, limited in scope, were mainly uh, waged by the Mufti and his henchmen, in 21, in 29, and even the so-called Arab Revolt of 36 to 39 was mainly infighting within the Palestinian Arab community rather than anti-Jewish measures. About, there are various uh, figures, but at least 1,000 to, between 1,000 to 3,000 Palestinian Arabs were killed during these years by their own people, as opposed to a few hundred Jews and a few dozens British. So there was no great Palestinian Arab hostility to the Jewish national uh, revival in Palestine, despite the, 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 the very uh, persistent effort by the Mufti and the Palestinian Arab leadership uh, to foment uh, Hostility between the two communities, uh, paradoxically, at the same time that the Palestinian Arab leadership was fomenting a, a conflict and hostility against Jews, it benefited itself from the Jewish enterprise. This Palestinian leaders sold the land to the Jews, even the Mufti's father sold the land to the Jews at a time when the Mufti issued a fatwa uh, Stipulating a death sentence for anyone selling the Jews. So the, 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 the poor, ordinary peasants were punished for selling very small plots of land for the Jews at the same time that their leadership sold thousand times as large plots of land uh, with impunity. So, on the whole, there was no great hostility towards the Zionists among the Palestinian Arab population on the one hand. On the second hand, there was no strong Palestinian national identity, because the Palestinian Arab leadership focused on inciting against the Jews rather than building uh, the Palestinian nation and its institutions. And the result came in 47, 48, when they launched the war against the Yishuv, and they collapsed very quickly. This is the reason that Palestinian society collapsed and dispersed in 48, not as a result of a Zionist design to expel them but just because they are no nation and they had no appetite for war against the Jews. In fact, many of them sought to reach local agreements against the Jews, and in any area when they didn't initiate hostilities or were forcefully dragged into it by their own leaders, they stayed. And they- the so-called Arab world world was dominated from the early 1920s by the so-called doctrine of Pan-Arabism, Kaumiya uh, as they call it in Arabic, and it is often mistranslated in uh, Western literature as Arab nationalism. It's not Arab nationalism, it's basically Arab imperialism. It's the notion, which is completely wrong, that all Arabic-speaking people are one nation, and therefore they should be unified into one big state. Or rather, an empire comprising the entire Middle East. Now, there are various people who were pushing this, uh, this agenda. Uh, in the early 20s, it was members of the Hashemite family who arrived from Mecca. Uh, there was Emir, later King Hussein, uh, who waged the so called Arab Revolt, which was anything but an Arab Revolt because most of the Arabic speaking uh, subjects of the Ottoman Empire didn't join the revolt. The Lawrence of Arabia stuff. Uh, but after the war, his two sons, uh, Faisal and Abdallah, uh, carried on the claim that the Arabs were one nation, and therefore they demanded states for themselves. Uh, Faisal was the more famous, uh, in fact, signed an agreement with Chaim Weizmann, the head of the Zionist movement, in 1919, in which he undertook to facilitate uh, the implementation of the Balfour Declaration. But then a year later, he was a appointed by his supporters, king of Syria, which he claimed to include Iraq and Palestine, and then, of course, he reneged on his agreement. And this was this desire to annex Palestine to Syria that created the first clash in 1920, the first anti-Jewish violence. Now Faisal was expelled from Syria, but his brother Abdallah took control of uh, Transjordan, and he, too, wanted to establish the Greater Syria, which would include Palestine. And Abdallah, during the 20s and 30s, tried to persuade the Zionists uh, constantly to accept, uh, to give up the idea of an independent state and to become a province uh, within his Greater Syria. He failed, uh, but in 1948 he took advantage of the situation and attempted to implement this dream. Now the other which means that he invaded Israel with a view of taking as much territory as he took, he could from a mandatory Palestine and annex it to his kingdom, if possible, destroy the nascent state of Israel. So can you
1: tell us a bit about the involvement of Egypt and Lebanon in the story here?
2: Now, the Egyptians entered reluctantly with a view of containing Abdallah and taking over the Negev, which is about 60% of Israel's territory, the southern part. The Syrian entered again to contain Abdallah and take control of the Galilee. And so did the Lebanese, who wanted to take the Western Galilee. So the story that the Arab invaded Israel in order to help the Palestinian Arab is nonsense. They invaded Israel in order to destroy it, or at least reduce it to the minimum side, and take for themselves whatever they could from mandatory Palestine. And paradoxically, by winning the 48th war, Israel ensured the survival of the Palestinian cause. Because if Israel were destroyed in 48, its territory would have been taken by the invading Arab forces, and the world Palestinian would have disappeared from the political map already then. It's only because Israel survived that the Palestinians managed to remain as refugees in the Arab states and little by little built their national identity.
1: What was the treatment of refugees in other conflicts like? And how do you compare that with the
2: refugees created in this war? I mean, The Second World War created a huge refugee problem, and uh, the other uh, conflict in its immediate wake of uh, tens of millions of refugees, you had Germans from uh, eastern Prussia, you had, uh, uh, during the war, you had Finns uh, relocating from Karelia as a result of the Russian uh, invasion of Finland in 1939, about uh, nearly half a million of them, which is almost as large as the Palestinian uh, exodus. And uh, all of these refugees were resettled eventually in uh, their own countries, or in the countries uh, where they fled to. The only ones that have not been resettled to date are the Palestinians. Uh, In Transjordan, which became Jordan in 1950 as uh, Abdallah annexed uh, Judea and Samaria and called it the West Bank of the Transjordanian or Jordanian Kingdom, in Jordan is the only Arab place where Palestinians received citizenship rights. And he didn't do it out of the goodness of his heart. He, he did it because he needed the body count. And Jordan is a very large uh, country by uh, regional uh, not compared to the United States, but obviously about 3 times, 4 times larger than Israel. With a very small population, and he needed a body count, so the Palestinians in Transjordan got Palestinian citizenship, even though they are discriminated against the original Transjordanians over the years. But apart from uh, Jordan, uh, no other country uh, gave them uh, citizenship. In uh, Egypt, uh, the Palestinians, which occupied the Gaza Strip uh, between 48 and 67, uh, they held other military uh, regime, oppressed, with no rights whatsoever, not travel rights, they couldn't even live at their will. Uh, The Palestinians who were in Egypt uh, itself, not uh, Gaza, in much smaller numbers, uh, were not given uh, citizenship either. In Lebanon, to this very day, the vast majority of Palestinians don't have any rights and not citizenship. but. They cannot even buy property. They cannot own land. They cannot work in dozens of professions and so forth, so so on and so forth. In Syria, their situation is slightly better, but only slightly. The Palestinians were discriminated against in in uh, Kuwait, for example, where hundreds of thousands of them went to work and live and live for decades, and then they were expelled in uh, after Saddam Hussein's invasion and the liberation of the Emirates, because the PLO helped Saddam Hussein, so the 400,000 Palestinians who lived there for decades were expelled. So, on the whole, the Arab states, with the partial exception of Jordan, used the Palestinian card since '48 as a drum card against Israel in order to keep the so-called right of return open, which meant basically in their own language, the destruction of Israel through demographic subversion.
1: Now, in the book, you write about the way in which this issue of the refugees is used by these nations. So they present themselves to the West as having humanitarian concerns, but you argue that they the evidence shows otherwise in terms of how they actually treat the Palestinians. Of course, when they
2: speak to Western audits, says that we've pretend uh, to be concerned about the humanitarian rights of the refugees, but the idea of the right of return is the destruction of Israel, and since they know that Israel is not going to accept, uh, you know, this uh, kind of thing, they keep it going in order to weaken it and to ostracize it and to delegitimize it in the international community. They also got substantial uh, contributions from the international community and the United Nations, uh, either through UNRWA, the special United Nations outfit established for the Palestinian refugees. Again, this is an exception because we have uh, another organization uh, belonging to the UN uh, that deals with all other refugees, but the Palestinian refugees got a special treatment, they got got their own outfit, UNRWA, which was established in 1949 designed to be very short-lived just to help them be absorbed in the Arab states or relocated to Israel, but UNRWA developed its own raison uh, d'etre and uh, exists to these very days. So the Arabs benefited financially for it, politically for it, and they mistreated the Palestinians all along in order to undermine Israel' international position. No Arab states really gives a damn about
1: it. So, uh, you've characterized the refugee problem or the right of return as a claim that's being used as a trump card. Uh, I'm interested in hearing more about how how is this figured into the more recent history with the Oslo peace process that started about 20 years ago. And w- so, was it a live issue throughout this period, or did it, was it dormant? Was it Oscillating.
2: Okay, I mean uh, the right of return goes back to forty-eight, to, to resolution, to UN resolution one nine four uh, of December uh, forty-eight, which basically, uh, General Assembly resolution, not Security Council resolution, so it's only has a recommendation value, and, and this resolution, in any case, was passed after the, the assassination of. Uh, the UN mediator, uh, Count Bernadotte by Lehi, a terrorist, you could say, in uh, Jerusalem. And it basically spoke about peace in the Middle East. And only one uh, clause of of the many clauses that it included referred to the refugees. Now in this resolution it said that the refugees, and it said refugees, by the way, it didn't speak only about the Arab refugees, so you can really (laughs) apply to the Jewish refugees, The refugees could go back, should be able to go back to their homes at the first practicable practicable opportunity. They didn't say the first opportunity practicable, which of course, you know, it's a very vague term. But as I said, it could apply to, to the Jewish refugees, even though I doubt very much whether they would like to go back to the Arab states. And then... On top of it, the resolution spoke about the reintegration of the refugees into the Arab states. So, the resolution didn't speak about the return, it spoke about return and resettlement in the Arab state, which is very important because the Arabs later came to interpret it as authorizing the right of return. Now, when it was passed, the Arabs of course rejected it, and they rejected it for dozens of years. Only in the 60s, with the help of the Soviet Union, with the help of the Third World, they accepted it and then they changed the interpretation as if it gave them a right of return, just like they misrepresented uh, two, for two uh, about the uh, 67 uh, war, which they accepted 21 or even more years after its passing. So it's a very clear pattern. The Arab- don't accept the U.N. resolution which doesn't suit it, suit them, then they accept it decades later and misrepresent its meaning. So how do the Palestinians and the Arabs view this? So there is no right of return uh, by the United Nations uh, in '48, But in Arab perception and perception of many of their supporters in the West, uh, there is. And when Oslo came... Uh, at the beginning they were more vague about this and tried to avoid it uh, in public statements, but there is no doubt that they didn't give it up, and at a certain point they started saying it uh, openly, which of course shocked many of the Israelis so-called uh, peace campers. Like Amos Oz. he said, look, the right of return means the destruction of Israel, how can you support it? So Hanan Ashraf said, look. Our responsibility is not to ensure the survival of Israelites, it's to ensure the survival of the Palestinian people. So yes, the Palestinians are still committed to the right of return, and Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, the the president of the Palestinian Authority, whose term in office in fact expired in 2009, but is still in office, has uh, repeatedly uh, referred to the right of return. So the right of return in the Arab jargon means the destruction of the state of Israel through demographic subversion. And they haven't given it up, which means that the Oslo process is a sham.
1: Yasser Arafat, the leader of the Palestinians, pioneered international terrorism. He went on to get a Nobel Peace Prize. Now, this is the time at which people think he changed and became a peacemaker. You're saying otherwise. What, what leads you to that view? What's the evidence for that?
2: The Oslo process, the so-called Oslo process, was a, a grand deception on Narafats and the PLO side. I mean, and I'm saying it with great sorrow because, I mean, you know, I realize many of you listeners don't know, but I was a supporter of the Oslo process at the time, because I saw the Palestinians were serious about this, even though I was disillusioned at a certain point, and, and, and changed my mind. And then I studied uh, their attitudes, uh, how they thought about it, what they meant what they said to the wrong people, not what the Israelis thought that they were thinking or what the Americans thought that they were thinking, what the Palestinians were thinking. And then you realize that Arafat never intended to reach peace with the Israelis.
1: And just uh, one more question about the Oslo process, and I know we're running short on time. I'm just interested in, so you, you've you written about it and you've written about Yasser Arafat and a lot of the related issues I'm interested in your take on what were the motives for the Palestinian leadership in taking part? So in particular, what did Arafat hope to gain? What, what do you think was at issue here? Was there a genuine interest in finding a settlement? Was, what, what
2: do you think is going on? The Palestinian, the PLO adopted in 1974 the so-called phased strategy which said that They would take whatever territory Israel would give to them, establish a fighting Palestinian National Authority, which is what the PA is called, the Palestinian National Authority, and continue the struggle from there until the ultimate quote-unquote liberation of the entire territory of Palestine. The Oslo Agreement was the implementation of this strategy. And in fact, on the very day, the 13th of September, 1993, that Arafat signed the Oslo agreements on the White House loan, a a broadcast, pre recorded broadcast by Arafat, ran on Jordanian radio in Arabic, in which he told the Palestinians that basically what he was doing was the implementation of the right of, of the faith strategy. So, on the very day that he signed the agreement, He told his own constituents that basically he was bluffing and he was implementing the right of return, which meant a graduated strategy for the destruction of Israel. And since he's coming to Gaza, he played a a two-faced game to Israel and Western audiences. He pretended he spoke peace, more or less. To his people, he spoke war and took measures to launch war. He didn't disarm the Hamas and Islamic Jihad, as he required to do, he incited incessantly in all media and other measures given to him, because Israel allowed the establishment of a Palestinian national authority in, 90, in May 1994, which spread from Gaza to most of the West Bank, most of the Palestinian population in the West Bank even though not all of the territory is under Palestinian control. So they could be brainwashed, just as they'd been brainwashed by the Mufti in the 1920s, but with much better means of communication now. And uh, basically encourage eventually the Hamas to revert to terrorism. And when in 2000, uh, Ehud Barak uh, tried to solve the problem at one stroke and took him to Camp David, Arafat was forced to say no, because he couldn't sign an agreement that ended the conflict. If Barak was willing to sign a temporary agreement, let's say, for the next ten years, in which Israel would withdraw from the West Bank and there would be peace in stages, he probably would have signed it. But Barak demanded the end of the conflict, Arafat couldn't sign it. And then, a few months later, he initiated his war of terror that came to be known as uh, the Second Intifada, or Intifada Tel Aqsa, even though it is not an intifada. Intifada means surprising rebellion, there is no rebellion, because the people didn't live under Israel's control, so what rebellion is it? But the fact that they managed to insert the name to the international consciences, including the Israeli public opinion, is a major victory for them, but on the whole, Oslo was a big sham, they never intended to make peace, and to my mind, the Palestinian authority about Hamas, nobody doubts because they say it openly. But in my mind, the Palestinian authority headed by Mahmoud Abbas is not interested in reaching a solution either. And Obama can do whatever he can try to do, whatever he can, but is not going to drive the Palestinians to peace. So there's a common view I
1: want to follow up on, and I want to get your perspective. There's a view that... Hamas, the Islamist movement in Palestine that's an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, is on one side and and far over on the other is the Fatah, the seemingly uh, pro-secular Palestinian group that used to be led by Yasser Arafat, now by Mahmoud Abbas, that these two are really far apart. And do you think that's true? That's not true.
2: And that's what they say themselves. Uh, You know, Palestinian uh, leaders have said it uh, among themselves several times, Uh, there is a mistaken notion that Fatah or PLO are secularists and Hamas is religious. It's nonsense. Middle Eastern societies, as we can see today from the takeover of, by Islamists, of Egypt, of Tunisia, or Morocco, they are the majority, and so on and so forth, and Syria soon. Uh, Middle Eastern societies are a deeply devout society, and so is Palestinian society, so the PLO was never the secular society it was taken for. In fact, Arafat was a deeply devout person. You know, in his youth, Arafat was born and grew up in Egypt, and he was a member of the Muslim Brothers, and so were some other prominent members of the founding fathers of Fatah. So there is no big difference at the ideological level for them between secularism and religious, both of them, their ultimate goal is Israel destruction. The strategies, however, changed in 1993, because Arafat decided uh, to play a double game, to speak peace while making war, whereas the Hamas is at the stage, the PLO was prior to 1993, and they speak their mind openly. And that's the only difference. So it's a difference of strategy, not of objectives.
1: Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks again, Professor Karsh, for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. We really appreciate it. Looking forward to hearing more about your work. And uh, thanks again.
2: Okay, pleasure.
0: You've been listening to Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast. This episode, with host Alan Journal and guest Ephraim Karsh, is titled The Arab-Israeli Conflict and the Palestinian Refugees. Ephraim Karsh is professor of Middle East and Mediterranean Studies at King's College London and director of the Middle East Forum. Dr. Karsh's latest book is titled Palestine Betrayed. Information about the Middle East Forum can be found at meforum.org. Information and episodes of this podcast are available on the Voices for Reason blog at blog.aynrandcenter.org or on iTunes. You can find more information about Ayn Rand and her ideas on the web at AynRand.org. I'm Amanda Maxim for Eye to Eye.